Um, so who has ridden micromobility ever? Scooter, a bike, that's amazing. Uh, but doesn't surprise me. Um, who's ridden a bike in the last 30 days? You all rule. <laughs> that's great. Um, who took a bike or micromobility to transit? That's what's up. Um, as Alex Roy would say, all modes lead to transit, which is a really great concept. Micromobility at its best uh, really complements the existing transit network. Uh, it unlocks a lot of opportunity. And what you all are witnessing today is, is history in the making. Uh, what we're seeing is the largest shift in history ever from an ownership model to a service model. Your phone's gonna replace your car. It's, it's powerful. Can I get a whoop whoop? That's what's up. So 60% of all trips are less than five miles. Um, that's an e-bikeable distance. Um, why are companies like Uber and Lyft interested in bike share? Um, when you have ride hailing, you have the overhead of paying a driver. Uh, it's a lot easier to put a scooter on the street than a level five autonomous vehicle. Level five autonomous vehicles don't exist yet. Um, so what do you think TAM is uh, for micromobility? Let's throw out some numbers. One trillion? That's a nice number. Total addressable market. Like how much is the market worth? Ooh. You know, what? Don't cheat. You've done your homework. Anyone else? Um, next slide. $1.4 trillion, doggy. That's a lot of money. Um, it's a, this is a huge industry. It's very dynamic, uh, changing a lot, uh, and it's, it's very exciting. Like what other slides do I have? Oh, last year, 2018, that was last year, 84 million trips taken. Uh, scooter popped up, uh, the largest share of the pie. Um, amazing proof of concept, not necessarily the best iteration of hardware we've seen, but an amazing proof of concept, and we're really excited to see how this form factor is going to change over time. Uh, so where did micromobility come from? Um, it was actually a radical idea back in the 60s. There was a movement uh, called the Provost uh, in Amsterdam, and they were advocates, and they, they advocated for things like affordable housing, sex education, they knew that your ability to access location was literally the physical manifestation of your opportunities in this world. The white bike is anarchist is what they used to say. Oh, and this is a pretty cool picture. This is Yoko Ono and John Lennon with the world's first bike share bike. Yeah, this is the provost bike. So it's changed a lot, but sometimes the most radical ideas are the best ideas. And I think that we should do a better job of listening to the radical things that people are saying today so we get there quicker. Can I get another whoop? Right on. Okay, so a lot of things have changed since then. John, that was one of the things that changed. I'm sorry I said that, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have had that sip of cider before I came up here. Um, yeah, station-based bike share took off in North America in 2010. Uh, anyone from DC out there? Cool, yeah, capital bike share. Uh, First bike share system in North America. Uh, city bike shortly after. Um, we've been working on e-bikes and bike shares since 2013. This isn't a new idea. Uh, this is some, a form factor we've been thinking about for a long time. It's been very intentional and Ryan's out there. He knows all about it. Um, yeah, so then we see dockless bike share uh, as a 
blink in time in 2017, and then we see e-bikes alongside of that uh, and scooters um, generating some really interesting numbers. Um, has anyone ridden an e-bike before out there? Did it feel something like this? I need help playing it. Let's try if I can do this myself. If you haven't ridden one, you want to ride one now, right? Cool. Thank you so much for listening to talk, uh, for, for being here tonight. I'm so amazed that so many people, oh, I'm so glad so many people showed up. I'm so glad that you all are here. Uh, it's going to be a really special panel tonight. Uh, thanks again to Mapbox. Um, thanks, Becky. Thanks, Dom. Um, yeah, and thank you all. Uh, we're going to hand it off now to James Gross, our fearless leader who's going to lead a very interesting panel tonight. Before we get into the panel, I said this earlier, a very diverse group of people who feel very passionately about one thing, and that's moving people around. Uh, we're going to keep it respectful. Um, I do have a long cane, and I will pull people off the stage if they say something naughty. All right, thank you. All right. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having us, Mapbox. Um, I have the pleasure to actually just moderate the panel very quickly. I'll just introduce myself. As Tarani mentioned, I'm James Gross. I'm the co-founder of Micromobility Industries, and I have $1.4 trillion in my pocket. And I want to give it out to you guys. Uh, just kidding. Micromobility Industries is just really around trying to move the industry forward. Uh, it was started by myself and my partner, Horace Dedu. Uh, Horace defined the movement, and we have a definition to what we think is micromobility. Please don't at me. I don't care about your opinion of what you think of our definition. Um, that definition is a modal that uh, is less than 500 kilograms, is uh, ideally provisioned by a motor. Yes, we think all of these modals will go electric in time. Um, it is utility-based, meaning it's not for joyriding. It's for getting you from point A to point B. Uh, and the, mo the ownership model, of course, could be you could own it or it could be actually shared. Um, so that's kind of uh, a lot of things, and we think we're in the midst of a real Cambrian explosion around what micromobility will be. And I think that's evident with the type of audience that we have here, which is really, really cool. With that, I'd like to invite the panelists onto the stage, if everyone doesn't just mind coming up. Don't hold it underneath the speaker. Okay, you can start. Check, check, check. No. Okay. Stacy's up. What am I doing? You're introducing yourself. Hey, hi. 
I'm, uh, can you hear me? Is this thing, is this thing on? Okay, all right. Hi, I'm Stacey Randecker. I am a co-host of the Flying Car Show. Uh, we named it that because that seemed like the furthest thing out there. We talk about the transformation of transportation every week here on KGO 810. Saturday mornings, bright and early. It's the only thing that's ever gotten me out of bed happily um, on a Saturday morning. And um, I am an enormous fan. I rode a jump bike here. I ride micromobility all the time. I prefer bikes. I think scooters are the gateway drug to bikes. Um, and I wish that there was e-bike share blanketing the globe. Thanks for being here. Hello, I'm Michael Knox Shimada. I'm leading product and partnerships at a small startup in Portland, Oregon called Ride Report. And quick thing about Ride Report, we work with cities across the world, basically building a software platform to manage their micromobility programs. So when you have five to 18, in the case of Madrid, Spain, micromobility, scooter share, bike share companies, it's really hard to manage, especially on a city's budget and not being able to hire full-time employees. And so our software kind of takes that complexity, uh, makes it simple for cities to be able to digitize the regulations and share that with operators out there and also get the data back from birds and limes, jumps of the world uh, in a way that's accessible to cities and they can actually build new infrastructure on that. Um, and I also happen to co-write a weekly newsletter on micromobility called Movements. Um, and we talk about scooters, bikes, and all that fun stuff. Uh, my name is Alex Roy. I'm uh, one of the founders of the Atonicast and thedrive.com. Uh, I'm also uh, director of special projects at Argo AI and the founder of the, can't believe I'm saying this, the Human Driving Association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'm working on a theory of what I call universal basic mobility, which is basically like universal basic income for transportation. I'm a huge fan of Michael Naka and an opponent of everything Stacey Randecker says. Uh, hey everybody, I'm Warren Logan and <clears throat> um, I'll be your government correspondent for today. Uh, I work at the San Francisco County Transportation Authority, which to be clear is not the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency <laughs> that runs Muni. Everyone nod your heads because that makes sense. <laughs> Great. We have two DOTs in the city. You're welcome. Uh, and I manage our agency's emerging mobility strategy, which means we try and incorporate all of these fun micromobility services into our planning for the long-range future of transportation in San Francisco. Amazing. Uh, I think Mapbox gets a shout out for the representation on this stage. This is really cool. Um, I'm excited for things to get rowdy. Uh, I don't know what's going on here, but I can't wait. Friends. Okay. Uh, I'm Nellie Pearson. I lead Jump's local marketing teams. We have folks in each city where we're live, which is now 24 cities worldwide. Um, I uh, am, am excited to be here, especially with my boss's boss's boss tonight, Ryan Respecki, uh, CEO, founder of Social Bicycles. When I interviewed with him pre-Jump, pre-Uber, I said, Ryan, I I just kind of want to take down TNCs. I just want to use bike share to take over the world. Uh, and here we are, disrupting from the inside. It's amazing. Um, 
I believe in bike share for so many reasons, um, political climate, my personal empowerment, socioeconomic empowerment, economic mobility, so many of these amazing things that address the problems that we all care about. Um, but I believe that the transportation network is inherently racist because we live in the United States and we have a history of segregation. We have a history of redlining. Any of our transportation resources or social resources are therefore racist. So I want to ensure that wherever mobility and micromobility goes, we keep that in our back pocket with us, um, that we are planning our systems according to that and that regulators are keeping us in check. Thank you. <laughs> Gauntlet thrown. <laughs> You have something there, Naka? You're going to raise, raise the mic. I don't want to interrupt you. Okay, that was beautiful. Thank you, Nelly. And thank you to all the panelists. Um, Tarani mentioned earlier uh, the trips under five miles. I think one of the staggering things when you look at either uh, U.S. transport or really global transport, you see this amazing power law of trip distance. And the, if you were to summarize, you don't need to look at logarithmic charts all the time to summarize things. But what you would see is that most trips are short trips. Um, most trips are actually even getting shorter. So Nelly, maybe you're, uh, you've been in the news with your S1 and the data coming off of that S1 for the first time, we're really seeing the really human behavior and TNCs and how it might be different than uh, how we drive automotive vehicles uh, by ourselves. And it actually is even shorter. So Uber's S1 states that 43% of all trips are actually less than three miles. Um, so you have almost all, half the trips that Uber takes are less than three miles. So it's even, it's an even more accelerated power law. Uh, and I guess my first question would be to you, Nelly. When, uh, well, two parts question, when will that all convert, right? It doesn't make sense to get in a 4,000 pound car to go three miles. Um, and what countries will convert first, given how global you are? Ooh, oh my goodness. So I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in Ryan's early conversations with Dara to be talking about these numbers and to be talking about the bottom line and what this means for a, a business. Um, we're already starting to see this in cities like Sacramento, where we're operating at scale keyword there being at scale. Um, we are seeing in many hours, in many commute times that we're, we're getting more jump trips than actual Uber trips. So how do we get there? Keyword at scale. How many bikes are in San Francisco right now? Great question. We got 500. How many 500. bikes are in my town of Seattle? 5,000. It's, it's all about reliability. It's about making sure that this is normal and easy and you could walk out your door and there would be an orderly parking spot for all of your micromobility options and that there would be a distribution that would be based equitably on where transit is needed. And what another cool thing that we're seeing is that about a third of our jump trips are starting or ending in communities of concern. So we're seeing that Dockless Bike Share does democratize the access to bike share. But again, we need regulators there holding companies accountable. I don't think I answered your specific question on when, other than when stressing the, the scale part. And the country thing was, oh, I mentioned the country too, but the, the scale thing is a good point. So uh, Sacramento, I think, which is, uh, you know, I think heavily influenced by Davis, if I'm not, if someone fact checked me, but I believe Davis actually had the first bike lanes in the United States. Yes? yes. Yeah. So um, potentially what Sacramento shows is a forward thinking, progressive, transportation people back in the 60s that put that together and now we're yeah. seeing that influenced even by patterns today. Um, let's go to the question on just accessibility on the order of magnitude more in Seattle than San Francisco. Warren, naturally that's it's, uh, you know, not, not necessarily in your pocket, but in your world. So um, at 
you know, Seattle is not an order of magnitude bigger from a population perspective. Why would it be an order of magnitude bigger from a, a bike accessibility perspective? I think the underlying question is why don't we have 5,000 bikes here, right? Is it, <clears throat> that's the question. Um, I'll start by saying All that. All kinds of questions. Jump, right, sure. Uh, Jump is not our only bike share provider. Right. We also have what was Ford Go Bike before that was Motivate, now it is Lyft Go Bike, sure. Uh, and so if you put those together, you end up with a number that is in the 1,000s, issue one. So I will push back on that politely. There are no Ford Go Bikes that are e-bikes in San Francisco today. Zero, zero. I, shortly after they fix one simple braking problem no that Jump had identified privately, that gloves are off, right? Then uh, they'll be back on the market, right? <laughs> we are down, we have 500 e-bikes available to a city of 880,000 and counting. This isn't, this isn't a war on Warren. This is, this is making sure yeah, that we get bikes at scale. I often, I was, we were talking about this earlier, that typically, um, I'm going to play an exercise. All of you said, oh, we ride e-bikes and we've ridden scooters. Typically, when I make these kinds of speeches, I'm in front of a lot of folks that are double your age, start there, and that you are in no way representative sample of San Francisco. Like, nod your heads because that's true. And so, right, like, I just want to sort of establish that part of the reason why we don't have the order of magnitude more bikes here is that I think that, and this is the challenge back to Jump and all the micromobility companies, is that one of the challenges that we express in San Francisco, and by, this, by that extent the government, is that we are dissatisfied with the way that some of these companies have approached the government and our regulations. So unfortunately, I actually really like Jump. Like, let's start there. Go, go. Right. <laughs> And unfortunately, just before you all wanted to launch, Blue Go Go decided that they wanted to launch a million bikes. And we were like, oh, hold on, that's not a good idea, right? Like that, that won't work, given that just before, China was like, oh, this didn't work. So had, and I think this is my point to a lot of the companies, had many of you expressed your desire to launch prior to launching, you might have been able to meet with someone like me that would help you navigate what can arguably be a very challenging process in terms of permitting. And that's something that we should improve. I'll, I'll just add two sidebars there. Jump proudly has never launched without a permit. And the fastest growing demographic for e-bikes is the aging population that they represent over 20% of e-bike trips in the last year. But we don't see those in those, we don't see those folks in those meeting rooms. So I would say there's quite a bit of responsibility on on micromobility companies to mobilize our users and turn them out to city meetings to make sure that you're getting your bike master plan in place, to make sure that we're actually addressing our vision zero action plans, to make sure that we're actually getting the protected bike lanes that cities want. Yes, and it, this definitely should not be the pick on Warren or pick on San Francisco uh, public transit session by any means. Let's talk about the exciting things happening with entrepreneurs and just going, you know, that ultimately if you build a company, you can't blame your problems on the city, right? Like you are responsible for your customers. The city is not the arbiter, your customer, right? Ultimately you have a direct relationship with them no matter what. Um, and bird kind of came out yesterday and said, we do have a direct relationship with our customer. Naka, you want to comment on what you saw from bird? What's bird doing there? Um, are we going to see birds all around San Francisco without permit, completely legal? Santa Monica, or this isn't in Santa Monica. So I don't think there's anyone from Bird in here, right? Um, yeah, so Bird, uh, let's rewind, rewind about a year. Uh, a year ago, there was Lime, Bird, Spin, all operating 
in San Francisco, arguably at scale with thousands of scooters. <laughs> and there was a lot of opinions on that in the local press, but also national, international press. And as a side note, I would argue that if scooter companies didn't launch in San Francisco, it would have made this whole process a lot easier globally, uh, just with a lot of the relationships I've had with cities. Uh, but Bird and the like got pushed out of San Francisco last year after the new permit process went into place. But obviously they had 100,000 users uh, over the, uh, the course of their three months here in the city. Um, and they've always been looking at creative ways to getting back into San Francisco. And yesterday, as James alluded to, Bird launched a subscription service, a monthly basically lease program where you get your own Bird scooter that's yours with a lock two device that you can take around the whole city uh, with you. Um, and it's yours for the month and there's maintenance bundled into that package. Uh, for 25 bucks a month and if you look at the economics it's actually kind of a steal 300 bucks a year a decent scooter in my opinion is four to seven hundred dollars off amazon at least and you get uh your own bird delivered to you at your doorstep so i think what's that yeah exactly uh so, i can't wait to hack one just make it mine yeah. <laughs> like what are we talking yeah, so I, I think talk, talk about equity. <laughs> I mean, you want equity? Let's do that. Let's do that. I think this is important, right? I mean, a lot of you know, micro mobility. The concept's not old. I think a lot of what we've heard over the last year is this idea that, hey, entrepreneurs, hey, companies, you got to work with the cities. You got to actually go through the permitting process. This isn't going to be the next software revolution. You have these natural barriers to infrastructure that you don't have. Uber didn't have, with of course the shared model of ownership residing with the driver. And then what Bird did yesterday, I think is fairly seminal, right? I mean, they basically just said, well, no, I'm just gonna flip the entire model and the customer can choose. And all of a sudden I don't have to worry about the city anymore. That seems like a profound moment. I don't know if anybody loved. This is the thing that is the problem. Um, when, whether we're talking about the city of San Francisco or any other place that wants to put restrictions on micromobility, no one is asking Ford or GM, Fiat Chrysler, BMW, Mercedes, Avis, Hertz, Enterprise, any other company, uh, Citibank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you name it, Allstate, Prudential, people, there are thousands and thousands of companies that are profiting off of cars. They are everywhere and they are killing us, they are killing the planet, they are damaging our cities. We put all the demands on micromobility. We say these little things, these little electric things that are zero emissions. We say they must, those companies must fork over all the data. They must pay to use our streets. We will cap the number of vehicles that they can have in the car. We will permit which companies are able to deploy them. These, the things that are able to empower us to move freely through our cities and this world. These things that have no very little environmental impact and are not killing our fellow citizens. These are the ones that we restrict. And I think it is completely backwards and I am tired of the car blindness. This is what we have. We have car blindness. Go and then me. that. So, <clears throat> so in great, you're not gonna expect what I'm gonna say. I pretty much agree with you, but I'm going to walk slightly back, which is that for starters, 
car people pay plenty. I'm not saying they pay enough. Let's if you think say. they pay for the, what, the toll they take on the world, our roads, anything, they don't. So one of the interesting factors is that my agency is, it, it, right, yeah, we're just going to go in order here. So uh, one of the things that the Transportation Authority is in fact studying is how to level that playing field, right? And it's called congestion pricing. So that's area one. I hope I have your support. I don't know if I'm allowed to campaign for that. That's issue one. I don't disagree with you that a lot of the ways that we are, the onus that we're putting on a lot of these companies might be too much. I am going to profit the, the following though. There are lots of people who are on sidewalks that can only use sidewalks. They are in wheelchairs, for example. I remember that I broke my foot when they first launched scooters. And it was really challenging to go about my day getting over the at-scale thousands of scooters that, at the time, were totally unregulated and just dropped in front of people's streets, right? So that is the issue that we are trying to balance, is the fact that there are lots of people who are unfamiliar with these services, albeit great services, I've used all of them, and unfortunately, they are used to driving. And that is, again, back to our unrepresentative sample here, is that you're trying to make a case for people to use a service that they have already dismissed unfairly, right? Like if you go to the board of supervisors or if you start with my boardroom, for example, and say, show of hands, who has used one of these services? You would not get this sample. And that's one of the other challenges is that I think a lot of the, the effort that needs to happen here is for the companies to literally just go up to my deputies and say, please try the scooter. It's a ton <laughs> of fun, right? And yeah. that might be a way forward. Um, I have an incredibly fun job and some of my teammates are here where we get to win the hearts and minds of people where through really cool billboards or ad campaigns through really smart safety programming we can be talking to those people in that supervisor boardroom we can be talking to the general population who is not representative here in this room so we, we are in the process of normalizing what those scooters and bikes look like on our sidewalks, but, but it is the Wild West and we need to be able to reallocate that space that was allocated starting in the 50s and 60s that has now shaped our suburban experience, that has now shaped our urban experience, and that's going to happen. Um, it's just a little bit like the Wild West right now. And the last thing I'll say on safety, which is like we talk about roadway dangers and we talk about safety and it feels very abstract, but place this in your mind and think about it every time you get on an airplane. The equivalent of one 747 of people die every single week in car crashes, either walking, biking, or in their cars in the United States. One 747 each week. It's 40,000 people on average each year in the U.S. And here we are talking about Boeing nonstop about these two 747s. And yes, we need safe airways, we need safe planes, but People are dying. In D.C., three pedestrians are hit every single day. It, it is a nightmare. It is a nightmare. One of my really good friends was killed last Friday on his bike, stopped at a stoplight with a helmet, doing everything right. We got we to fix it. So we're happy to be in the room supporting you all by getting more faces into that room and getting that reallocation of space expedited. When I would challenge everyone in this room to show up to the San Francisco County Board of Supervisors meetings, yeah. right? Like... I agree with you that we should have more of these things. And unfortunately, many of you are not in the room, right? And that's, that's where I come in and I try and push for that. Period. I, I, I feel compelled to chime in 
Sure, Alan. <laughs> um, I, I'm a New Yorker, um, and I've lived a lot of different places. It's, and I, I wish we had more micromobility in New York, but this is directed at you. <laughs> because I feel like on a personal level, we agree politically on a lot of things. But when, you t when people talk about access and equity and reducing discriminatory policies, which percolate into ground level consequences, racism, for example, in transportation policy, transit deserts, um, it seems to me that it is very dangerous to lure people into relying on private forms of transportation instead of public transit when a fleet-wide problem can knock out 500, 1,000 scooters, 2,000 scooters, and that there needs to be like a single publicly funded backbone that can be relied upon regardless of a brake failure or design flaw, and that many people would be better served getting somewhere on a train and walking the balance of the distance. So I'm all for, I mean, I, I don't think anyone in the room likes driving more than I do, but driving mostly sucks. And I, as a New Yorker, I virtually never drive. I love the train and micromobility would be great, but in no universe would I would want to take a scooter anywhere two seasons out of four. <laughs> um, I feel like you just alley-ooped me one. I'm so excited to respond to this. And also my boss moved a little bit closer, so I don't know if I'm getting <laughs> reined in. Step back So I'm this just gonna one. look this way. Um, yes, 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 and yes. Transportation deserts, where are they? In the poor neighborhoods. Where is, where's our transportation access if those people are not getting the basic transit needs that it is? So what we see ourselves as serving the necessary stopgap for that basic transportation need. Um, I can't tell you the stats on how many capital bike share stations are in transit deserts in Washington, DC. There's not a lot. That is not a reliable service. That like, I could not bike from A to B um, if I was going to the bank, if there wasn't even a bank in my neighborhood. Um, so yes, yes, and. So how can we support cities in encouraging transportation investment so that they can have better transit access in the first place and that we could just be one piece of the puzzle? So I, I don't think that I could ever use or endorse any private system or platform unless there was a minimum service guarantee in the same way that people believe that we should have universal basic income or socialized medicine, that people cannot move, like a family, a working class family cannot move from one location to a more optimal location closer to work without a minimum service guarantee. Do you think a private platform for any mode can ever offer that? What happens when your car breaks down, Alex? Who is coming in to save you when your car breaks down? Really? Because that's a private thing. Cars have never been more reliable. I don't know. You're, you're, you're making a wholly false argument here. It's like you're asking that, that private uh, or that, that a privately owned shared micromobility company has a standard better than your personal private car or better than, I don't know, Muni that was down. Uh, our, our underground was down on Friday. And we, you know, it's like, what do we do then? Well, it's, currently, our entire society is structured 
most of this country is structured on the notion that public transit sucks or doesn't exist. And so society is structured around an equilibrium point. So why are, you making, why are you asking that shared micromobility go to a standard beyond? Why? Actually, a standard equivalent to would be a good start. So, but uh, why? Why? Why do they have to do that? What standards are we not meeting now? I'm, I'm not some, not that you're not meeting the now, but there was a fleet wide, there were two fleets went down last month. Is that correct, Michael? Where do you live? Where do you, where, where do you live, Alex? It wasn't who went down last month. When's the last time you rode a bike? Lyft's <laughs> so lift bike went down very recently with the brake issue. Let's talk about accessibility just for a second, because I, I, I do think this is very important. I think it's very important that micro holds itself to a higher standard than some of the institutionalization of how cars rolled out and how public transit rolled out. I think that's a very good bar. The, one of the challenges, though, is just no one uses this stuff. Like, again, go back to, I, I don't think Uber will report this, but as far as I know, there's almost 250,000 trips a day on weekdays in and out of San Francisco. Uh, you can just go directly to sfcta.org, and we um, uh, modeled all of that. What's travel. the step? It's, it's so, more than that. It's more than that. So we're talking, just about, go to the we're talking about 500 bikes against 250,000 trips a day. Like, what are, why are we arguing over accessibility? Like, it's, we're, just, we're not even making a micro dent. Like, so what do we... Well, I think what you should we, consider why people are using a car versus a bike versus whatever, right? Like, I think, and this gets back to some, I'm going to beat up my, on myself for a second, right? So I think that a lot of people don't like biking because they don't feel safe doing so. And that's on us, right? Like that's on the city to demonstrate how we can use the data or use your tax dollars to implement safe infrastructure. And that's in fact, one of the things that my project work started this year was to take what little information we have about these services and try and demonstrate where we should be putting in hundreds of millions of dollars of capital improvements to support these kinds of services. However, one of the challenges that I face, and I think this is going to get to one of our other questions, is that when I go to the companies and say, hey, where are the routes that your people are using the most so that I can put bike lanes there? They're like, ugh, can't seem to find the data for that one. I'm like, okay, well, then it's going to be really hard to find the money to support putting that bikeway in, right? Now, in a perfect world, I would personally, you can quote me on this, love to see protected bikeways across the city. That being said, I live in Oakland, so that's another issue. But I need your help to help make that case. Are you suggesting, are you part of MDS? What is MDS? Mobility Data Standard. Yes. Good. Yes. Now, the other side of this is something that none of us are collecting, is why did you choose this trip instead of another? It's not enough for me to know that you took a bike trip. I'm actually more interested in the people who are riding Ubers and why they chose that mode instead of bikes. That is a more valuable piece of information that no one has right now. And I challenge anyone who works at a private company to actually understand that. That, is, that data piece is worth its weight in gold. Okay. Okay, that's Stacy's answer. That's a good answer. Let's go around the horn on this. Why are there 250,000 rides a day and no one cycling or no one scooting because there's also a thousand of those? Like, what like is going 600. on? What's that? 600. Okay, even better. Against 250K. Um, so that's a good question, though. Like, we're going to, we're consumers. We're going to choose, like, no matter how good we feel about the BART, which I wear the pin to, I love it, do it every day. There's people that are choosing very clearly to take, Ubers. 
What is it and how do we change that? I think the answer is really simple there. And I think if, if we pulled this room, it would be reflective of the status quo. And it's what you just said, people don't feel safe. People don't feel safe. They're putting their lives in their hand every time they go out and do it. Um, so it's having that, that seamless connection of world-class protected bike infrastructure. Thank you, Warren, for planning that and installing it yourself across Oakland too. Let's just um, not talk about the city for a second though. Let's okay. talk about other things. What yeah. can we do? What's the software? What's the intelligence? It, like, you know, I saw that. I love the jump seat that Alyssa put on uh, Twitter yesterday, how it basically, dry, it's dry. Like, what are the things that we're not designing that we can design to be safer where we don't have to talk it, to the city? It's not software. It is literally the malleable streets that cities control and it's reframing them to prioritize our most vulnerable road users. It, it's nothing, Anyone else? It, Let's I just, would argue I it is, that is completely out of our control. I will, I will one up you though, which is here's a technological solution, right? So how many of you have used the, the green transit app? Show of hands, wave them proud, right? So thank you. Uh, that is actually a technological solution that I'm actually really encouraged that the TNC companies are rolling out soon enough in San Francisco, which is when you open a map-based app, you are not just getting an information set about how to get from A to B, it is also causing you to understand what are your trade-offs. If you use Google, it will tell you, you can either bike, you can walk or whatever, and all of that is based on speed. What it does not do is provide metrics around safety or cost. None of them do that right now, right? So that's a technological solution that if you open your Uber app or your Lyft app, it might tell you, well, here's the trip that you wanna take from A to B, where are you going? And then here are a series of options based on a series of metrics that you might be interested in, whether that's, again, price. It is cheapest to walk. It is next cheapest to hop on a scooter for that distance. Yeah. Or better yet, here's how to connect from the scooter to transit. And then on the other end, we'll have a car waiting because it's supposed to rain. Has, that's has mobility anyone, as a service. Sorry. Go ahead. Has anyone been in Denver safe? recently? We just rolled out transit in Denver. Um, so... Thank you. So in the Uber app, you can see just that endeavor and pretty soon in cities, because it's going to take a while, you'll be able to put, book your transit trip in the Uber app, but it's going to take a while because we got to work out stuff and make sure cities are happy. Um, but, but that will be the, the experience. It will all live on that platform. That is the replacing your car with a phone that Terry said. Nelly, but you mentioned earlier about cars basically being the most dangerous thing for people under 40, right? 40,000 people die, more people die in cars than anywhere else. That's not safe. So when you say feel safe, people aren't safe in cars. So why don't they feel safe riding bikes? Like that seems yeah. like it's an advertising problem. It seems like it's a positioning mm. problem. It, mm -hmm. seems like, uh, it seems like if you got more bicyclists on the street, you would make the street safer. Like we can't go back to the idea that it's gonna be the cities putting more lanes in necessarily. What are the other ways that we make people feel safe? Cause they're not safe in cars. Totally. Um, and, and again, it, it's not that cars are inherently unsafe, even though a 4,000 4, pound machine coming at you at an average of 37 miles per hour is unsafe. It's the way that the roads are designed. So if we looked at Seville and they installed their 80 miles of protected bike lanes, biking increased by like 230%. If we looked at Tokyo and their bike master plan, uh, we would see similar numbers. Um, I'm sure you have amazing stats on what it looks like when market, which does not feel very safe, was installed and the, the just rocket ship explosion of bike stats. But then as you say, powers and numbers, the more people you put on the road who are biking, the more awareness that you gain from other road users. So there is this incredible positive feedback loop that's happening.
Warren. Uh, <laughs> Go on. How many people in the audience are familiar with the mobility data standard? So not that many. Specification. Um, it, which was, I, I think, was created by Salida Reynolds at LADOT, which maybe you should explain exactly how it works. Because my question to you is, how many companies, I'm not singling you out, how many TNCs or micromobility platforms or operators have volunteered to cooperate versus opposing it? And what are the benefits to cities of MDS? Your first question. Uh, to my knowledge, very few companies have voluntarily shared their data. Would you like to explain just what it is? Sure. So um, one of the challenges that government interfaces with um, companies is that everyone is speaking a slightly different language about how they provide origin and, trip origin and trip destination data back to their regulators. So for example, I could tell you that this person went from A to B, or I could might tell you in a different language. And so if I'm a mobility manager for a permit system, and I'm getting data from Lime, I'm getting data from Bird, I'm getting data from Scoot and Skip and Hop and Dr all of them, right? Head hurts. Um, that is really challenging for the government to try and like make hay of apples and oranges and broccoli, right? That's issue one. The other area too, though, is that when the cities want all different things, this is on our end now, right? Like that each different city is asking a different level of information from each one of the companies. So if I'm Jump and I'm wanting to work really closely with Denver, then I want to work really close with Seattle, like no amount of want is going to make that an easy task if each one of those cities is asking for totally different information. Imagine you're making a bespoke dashboard for every single client you have. That's really, like nod your heads, that's challenging, right? So, or maybe it's not, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so the goal of MDS is to try and get everyone to agree on what the data is that we're going to collect and a template for how to collect different kinds of data. And so it was cooked up by Salida Reynolds and I believe Bird. And I'm, to my knowledge, Uber and Lyft participated in this. So it, there is reluctantly. a- Reluctantly, but I can understand their challenge as well. Now, this is the other piece that I hope everyone is sort of- <laughs> I'm trying here, buddy. <laughs> the other challenge though, just so everyone is on the same page, is that, now this is the deep cuts here, uh, Uber and Lyft are not regulated by the city, they're regulated by the state. And so all of the data that they port over to the, the state- The rides business, huh? the, the rides business specifically. Yeah, the ri oh yeah, so specifically the ride hailing business only provides data to the state. So if you want me to handle congestion, right, because that's getting worse in the city, you all will acknowledge that it's getting worse, right? Thank you. There isn't much I know about how these companies are operating, save for the scant data that was scraped from an API in the, you know, what, November of 2016. So that's the other challenge, right, is that we need data from the micromobility, but we really want data, not you, sir, uh, from the TNCs. Okay. Um, so I, um, Salida is the one who conceived of this, and she was doing it um, in anticipation of autonomous vehicles. So this uh, data was, uh, standardization was meant to be applied to when we have autonomous vehicles, we need to know what they're doing, where they're doing, you know, whatever, making sure that they are meeting, you know, equity goals and that we're not um, singling out 
portions of the population or um, they're facing the impacts of it and not getting the service out of it and it made total sense. And by the way, I used to work for the guy who wrote it. So I know, <laughs> yes. And, and um, to quote tyranny, John Ellis, the guy who calls privacy a product. Uh, yes, uh, he, he was my boss. I know, um, and the thing that is frustrating to me, and thank you, James, for reminding me, because this is another one of my rants, is when I first uh, heard about MDS, um, you know, it was basically, we're doing this for autonomous vehicles, but it's like, oh, now there's this micromobility stuff. It's like, oh my God, this is perfect. Like, we'll just use it for that. And so they just said, okay, we're going to do this, and we're, we're going to clamp down, and we're going we're gonna to get all the data, and we're going to make her, what, and I'm like, and initially I was like, yeah, you know, just turn over your data. What do you have to hide, Uber and Lyft and whatever? Like, just do it. You know, we want our cities to be better. And then I thought about it. Ford, BMW, Mercedes, GM, Chrysler, any of them, you don't ask for any of their data. There are thousands and thousands of those cars out in the street. They are driving, they are parked there, they are blocking sidewalks and bike lanes and doing all manners of things, not getting penalized, not getting fined. I mean, because we're exploring, we're exploring, you know, blocked bike lanes to see if that, you know, because we are here about micromobility. And cars are the problem for micromobility. And so to hold the micromobility companies, they're the ones that's like, well, do I have to worry about identifiable data that people are, that, that now my customers are going to be able to be tracked? I initially thought that the companies were being paranoid. But the more I thought about it is, yes, absolutely, turn over all the data as soon as all the cars do. When you ask all the cars do, to do it, then come after the little guys who are actually trying to save the planet. So I just want to share... Thank you for that comment, that um, we actually have really robust data about how cars are traveling in the city of San Francisco. So again, I invite you all, I feel like I should run for office. I invite you to go to my website. Um, if you go to congestion.sfcta.org, we actually model travel behavior every year for the city. Individualize? And, hold on, let me just Individualize. I'm just going to go ahead and finish. So, um, yikes. Uh, to be clear, we're not individualizing, like, if you hop on a scooter, and you drive you know, on your scooter from here to there, I don't, I don't know that that's you. Like, that's not the data we're getting. If I was a charger and I was, this was my side hustle, I'm making my money, I'm pulling those scooters home every single night, you would know exactly who I was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Naka, you want to tell some stories there? So there are lots of ways, though, that this data is... A, secured, B, is aggregated, and C, is anonymized, right? Like, I have seen this data, and I don't have, like, you took a jump from your house to there. Like, I just don't. The second thing, though, to your point, though, Stacey, is that we don't, like, we have very good data on how cars are traveling in the city, and if you want me to make a case for why it is that we should rebalance, as I already am constantly doing, the different mode split, and our mode split is when you have different modes in the city. And with the, yeah, um, I need to know how many people a want to use scooters and want to use bikes, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like we put bike counters on most of our bike streets. Right? Like we are trying to make the best case for why we should use all of the tools at our disposal. But unfortunately, and this is I think one area where we really agree, there are lots of people who drive in the city 
that vote and that are pushing our board of supervisors to continuously have more space for less bikes, right? And so I challenge each one of you again to be in our meetings, right? To show up and say, we really want this to happen, right? But unfortunately, we are still having, and this is sort of the dumb part, right? We're still having an argument about whether or not to remove a, a parking spot, right? Like that is the biggest fight in every single person's neighborhood. In the abstract, people are like, yeah, remove that parking spot because safety. And the moment it comes to your block is when your neighbor is freaking out and calling my office every day, right? So mm -hmm. I just want you to be the voice on the other hand that's saying, no, no, it's okay. I'm willing to give up my parking spot. It's okay that I'm willing to give up that lane because I would prefer to have a safer street. I'm speechless. Comment? <laughs> I mean, I have lots of comments, <laughs> um, but it, like mobility data specification is it's a great initiative, and the companies are coming to the table. We work with most of these companies, um, and cities, not just in the U.S. but around the world, are getting this data about micromobility on their streets. Um, and the exciting part is, there are the cities that are actually taking that data and doing something with that data like Santa Monica and building more green lanes, reducing street speeds, things that improve the infrastructure so people, families, women and children feel safe riding around town. Uh, and that's what I'm really excited about yeah. is, <clears throat> yeah, we're getting us boatloads of data, but at the end of the day, we can have all the data in the world, millions of trips, but what, how do we take it to the next level? And what Warren talks about is, Converting a parking spot is one of the most challenging things in government. I, I'm pretty sure uh, it, people, yeah, it's confirmed. Yes, yeah, confirmed. Uh, <laughs> Try to take this a bit further, though, because again, what's so cool about micro is, uh, you know, like at, at where we come micro. from, we like to talk about like. <laughs> Wait, that's like, sorry, sorry, you're sorry. like labeling me. I thought we weren't doing that. Oh, um, right. uh, what we're yeah. trying to do. The thing about micro <laughs> is. Well, the idea is like, it's like fruit flies, right? Like we can test very quickly. Like I, 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 I ride the Lime V3 around Lake Merritt now and it says no parking, right? A version ago, it didn't tell me that. I knew it wasn't supposed to do it, but now there's the big red light and it says no parking. And I'm assuming if I park there, I'm going to get a little fine on my credit card. Like that's amazing. Yep. Because. I go also around that, that park and in, in the bike lane every day is this guy with an RV. And I'm like, why is there not an automated way to give this yep. guy a parking ticket? So exactly which, <laughs> so I live on the lake and I know exactly which RV and yep. like we should band together. <laughs> a ticket, cause yep. he does it every day. And I, I, and actually starting to pilot ways to, it's similar to the C-Click Fix app where if you take a picture and then it fixes your pothole ostensibly that a lot of cities are starting to say, okay, how do we nearly automate or democratize ratting on poor behaviors, right? Like, because how do we make it so the, just like if I leave my line bike there, I just get the ticket. It's not like I can talk to the police officer, the parking attendant, like so how give far you an example why that is that? So here, so this might sound a little technical and I'm going to walk you through it as quickly as possible. It's about 15 minutes. So if you can see the time, uh, so you know that all of our buses, maybe you don't, have cameras on the front of them to try and cite people who are in the red carpet lanes. Maybe you did know that, maybe you didn't. We are prohibited by state law to automate vehicle enforcement using those cameras. So instead, we are forced to have two people deputized to go through thousands of hours of video feed 
to give people tickets. That sounds like a great idea, right? So it is not even that the government, right, like in my case, our city, doesn't want to automate some of these things. We are prohibited by like the state charter, which is crazy. I, I just couldn't be more happy about the opportunities to iterate. Um, the, the design team that we have is amazing. The most nerdy bike people I have ever met and all of my friends are nerdy bike people. Um, and there are so many cool things in the works for improving not just the bike product, but scooter. But your comment about um, using a stick versus a carrot for parking could be a little bit twisted if perhaps some companies were going after other companies and intentionally knocking them over. Uh, there was a scenario in DC where the, the city was, was likely going to fine companies based on number of, of bikes tipped over. And that just, that just hunger games the, the entire environment. So how can we use carrots and give those riders credits? And how can we use carrots for safety? Every time you pull up in that app, you get a little safety trivia, which says like, what is dooring and how to, how to take care of yourself? How can we use like incentives within the app to improve behavior, which gets at something you mentioned earlier, which I, and I should circle back and make sure to claim. And that is the power of, of marketing and making our, our bikes cool and normal and scooters cool and normal. Um, if, if that wasn't the case, I would be out of a job because I mean, yes, infrastructure, but there's a lot of cool thought about human infrastructure behind biking. Adonia Lugo, who's an amazing anthropologist, who's done a ton of work looking at human connections and why it's so important to learn from one another when it comes to transportation behavior. So how are we using network theory to tap into the right people and the right influencers and do that through our app, through the product itself? What we're seeing is that most of our trips start on weekends with a group of people. So how could we be like facilitating date night where you come out and you check out a jump bike and you go over to your neighborhood and you find that mysterious car parked in the lane. <laughs> I'm so, taken yeah. just to be clear here. <laughs> How about for innovation? So, uh, and again, a lot of this is some of that collaboration where, um, you know, what we saw from Scoot, what we saw from uh, uh, Spin, no, sorry, not Spin, um, Sanjay's yeah, Skip here in the city, like where they, they created the, the little collar, of course, to lock them, uh, lock them up it kind of stopped some of the tipping it looks like actually looks like it was a, a really clever thing that now you see bird adopting i see it in oakland now um it's a requirement yeah but in and again i mean maybe there's some hesitancy on the on the on the platform side to want to do that but then they did it and it works well like uh naka you're close to this stuff like are you seeing other clever like just little little micro innovations that are really adding up that like we haven't seen here in the bay area um well, funny story. I actually created a fake scooter company to understand the Chinese supply chain over the last three months. Uh, and I can see future products for multiple companies and they'll WhatsApp me or not WeChat me and like, hey, you want the new bird scooter? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want it. I, I, um, I can't tell you right now. But Just fund it. No, like, what are you it, doing? It was just a science project, a research project, and um, <laughs> and so when I'm looking at the supply chain and like innovations coming down uh, the road right now, what I'm really excited about, and this hasn't happened in 
in cars and in, in, in automatic. Watch auto what you say. <laughs> in automotive manufacturing is that vehicles can be hyper tailored and customized for different geographic regions. And we're already seeing this in other countries where, hey, uh, Dubai building a specific vehicle for the climate and, and uh, geography of Dubai or for the Pacific Northwest where it rains, uh, inch, like feels like millions of inches uh, a year and building a vehicle that can just flourish in the Pacific Northwest versus the East Coast versus Detroit. And what I'm really excited about is seeing how the vehicles evolve for the different geographies. It's something we don't talk about, but it's part of the supply chain uh, in micromobility because it comes from uh, cell phone, smartphone parts, and also from the e-bike and automotive section, sector with uh, bros um, and Bosch uh, motors and things like that that were in the actual windows of cars. and. Yeah, so we're, it's really exciting to see how entrepreneurs will tap into the supply chain and customize vehicles for specific areas of the world and make hopefully their service flourish. So, Can I just respond to that really yeah. quickly though? So using the, what's called like the lock two mechanism for the scooters as a case study, that was a recommendation by the SFMTA and then the companies responded with innovation. And so the question perhaps is how do we be good partners where we don't, we the government, right? Like, prescribe what the solution is, but identify what a challenge is for us and then say, you tell me, Lime, how are you going to keep your limes out of our lake? And then make that happen, right? And then that's how they started with their V3, right? I, I just want to give Ryan credit for inventing Lock2 back in 2010. And it was actually Jump <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that, that yeah. like we saw that as the solve and what would make cities feel comfortable with clutter in public space. So we, we did respond to a problem. Good job. And I, I just I just want to add on to that because I was I'm I'm a social bicycle customer um, ba back in the day and I have I still the dock optional is to me the far superior mode of dock because I get everybody with their litter and um, it, that's exactly what I think of street parking is that it is litter, um, but I get it, but it, the dock optional allows you to have a dumb dock to sort of organize the bikes, but it's not required. So if that thing is full, you can still lock it to the stop sign or the tree out front or whatever, or just stand alone like many of them do now. I, I, yeah, like the hardware, like you guys rule on that stuff. And just making sure that folks know the dumb dock is just basically a glorified bike rack that you lock the the bike too. And that's what Dockless was, was taking all of the cool tech from the station itself and moving that to the bike and your cell phone. So yeah, I mean, it is an amazing hybrid of approaches. And I think what companies are really excited about are these mobility hubs where we're taking away those car parking spaces sparingly with community support and approval <laughs> where that becomes the, the dedicated place to park your scooters and your space boards and your jumps. I'm curious. So when you guys work on your product, I guess the geofence of where one can use your product, do you specifically, I mean, you obviously launch in places where it'll be, you hope it'll be profitable, but how do you plan to address transit deserts? I mean, do you go into a city in advance and say, we promise to service these underserved areas if you let us operate here? Yeah, and this is a great opportunity to plug Mapbox. <laughs> um, it, it totally depends on the city. 
Some cities are very far ahead and they come to us with prescriptive needs and they say, we want you in this area. These are the reasons. Here's the evaluation um, that we've done to make sure that those communities of concerns are addressed. Um, and then in other cases, we have an incredible urban planning team who has through their Mapbox tools, a great way of understanding what, what is job density? What does housing density look like? Where are those transit deserts? Um, what, what does the connection to other transit hubs look like? And we come to the cities with recommendations. So how long before we see a Lilu Dallas style multipass? You know, that's my favorite movie ever. My favorite question ever. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, mean, I don't even know how to answer it's that never question. Logical <laughs> end, or at least that is the, oh, where everything is as a consumer, that's the logical Evolution. end product. And if I can't have that, then I'd rather own a scooter, own a bike, own a car. And has everyone seen the fifth element? Oh, sorry, I haven't. That's pretty much your commercial so it, for the product. So when, if, we can, if I can't have that, I'm always going to own something because I don't want to have, in the continuum of modes, if there's a gap or, any, or enough friction, to me it's the equivalent of a gap in, intramodally. And so I'm going to then buy a mode, which is suboptimal for my life and the life of the city. So when will we see that glued together? I haven't seen uh, the fifth element, so I'm just going to imagine what you're like, talking about for dude, a second. I'm sorry. And you're I, in that I job. I sad childhood. So um, one of the things... Transportation policy movie. Probably. Well, yeah. Um, so if that's your vision of transportation... Well, oh, hold on. Let me, <laughs> all the problems of future transportation policy are in that movie too. So, so I think, think about like uh, just bringing up one level to that. So like, you know, we've got the Green New Deal that's floating out there. A lot of buzz around that. Um, not much, of course, in that about micromobility and that from what I've seen and read. Um, you know, if you look at prior transportation revolutions, uh, we talked about this at the Microbility Conference with Ford largely being funded through the government um, and really, you know, riding on top of the Industrial Revolution, the Kaiser shipyards that are out there in Richmond, talking about how, of course, the government funded that. We're in Silicon Valley, where, of course, a lot of this was ultimately funded by DARPA and what, what became uh, the Internet. Um, where is the funding, you know, where, you know, the potential for micromobility is a $1.4 trillion industry. I think transportation is a $15 trillion industry. Um, where is the soft bank of micromobility? Where is the real government funding for micromobility? Uh, do you guys see it coming? Do you hear it in the pipeline? Uh, I'd just be curious uh, what, what you might hear. I can speak for the government part. Um, so I think what's interesting about bike sharing is that before we had jump, right? we had Motivate doing public-private partnerships with cities. And we seem to have jumped, <laughs> jumped, skipped, I don't know, whatever, moved past that. No, that's another app too. Move. What was the name of yours? Yeah, that's what it was. Move past. Um, move past that model. And I think that unfortunately, without a public-private partnership like that, it's going to be really challenging to make the case why your, private, why your government tax dollars should be funding like overwhelmingly venture capital-backed multi-billion dollar organizations, right? Like, but I just don't see a case where we would ever do that, especially considering I don't believe profit sharing is ever on the table. So, you know, we tried to. Who declined besides, I guess, everybody to participate in that? Yeah, auto industry in OA. 
I didn't. So let's let's keep the level of government right, though. Like you're asking me to defend um, Obama's administration, right? Like I can't. I, I just I, I want to make sure talking to the government. Are we talking to the government about this? Are we are we doing this at the federal level? You know, yeah. is there people influencing some of the Green New Deal, New Deal work, which again doesn't really seem to address mobility in any sort of real way? Um, like. What are, what are we hearing? What are, if, we're the, if you're the influencers doing this, uh, where's think, the money um, coming from? It takes money. Yeah, um, this is far beyond my pay grade, but something worth in our two minutes and 49 seconds is, is expanding on what Warren said, which is back in 2010, we get our first bike share system. Cities and taxpayers are paying for that bike share. And that is definitely reflected in the service itself. So in DC, well, San Francisco is an anomaly, so is New York City. But if you were to take a bike share bike out in any other city, that would be a taxpayer funded bike. Um, and that meant that the service size was likely pretty small. You wouldn't have the same number of bikes because bike share is expensive. So now for companies to be coming to cities and say, hey, we want to provide this really important service to you. It's going to solve all of your action plan needs in your climate plan. It's going to solve all of your long range multi-transportation planning needs. And we're going to do it for free. Actually, no, you're going to ask us for money. We're paying to operate in these cities now when just three years ago, your taxpayer dollars were, were spending $6 million in D.C. to pay for that service. So what? And it's an inferior product. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that can change? Is Again, is that more of a perception thing? Can we get people to want these? Can we get them to understand just like they pay for the freeways and the potholes being filled in that, hey, actually having access to micro vehicles is an amazing perk of living wherever I live? Yeah, I, 100%. Let's go back to September 2017, Santa Monica, Bird dumped a bunch of scooters and started uh, this revolution. And we're here today talking about it because Travis took the risk. Uh, and, you know, looking back, most people are like, scooters, these are dumb. These are kid toy. And all of a sudden, they're in 300 different cities across the world. I've talked to over 50 different scooter operators around the world. And... There's millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of riders around the world. And that's what's most exciting talking to cities and like just even having this conversation tonight. It's happening in Madrid. It's happening in Mexico City. Uh, these conversations are converging and we needed this adoption. We needed this spark to start a revolution and revolutions are never smooth, as you can tell by this panel. And uh, <laughs> yeah. that right now, um, but at Michael Naka. <laughs> Uh, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but governments react to the demands of their constituents. And I'm talking to a, a city in the Midwest with subpar bike infrastructure, and they couldn't have been more excited about scooters coming to their city because now they can accelerate their bicycle infrastructure plan for their city because they're now people are on the streets using these services. And that's what excites me and gets me out of bed every day because we're at the cusp of this revolution. A lot of people say we're in inning one. I think we're still in the T-ball stage. And so we need people riding these vehicles to enact change. And you asked earlier, why does Uber, why do people pick Uber rides over a scooter? Because of this concept called certainty of mobility. My friend Gabriel Shear from Lime, always says they always understand or people can trust that a vehicle is around them when they need to get from A to B. And that's what we need in our cities. And that's what I think we need to work towards together is to get, get that sounds like a minimum service guarantee. Let's wrap it up. That was great. Thank you. Join me in uh, thanking the panelists.
Hope you learned a lot. Okay, cool. We're gonna have the panelists come back up so you guys can ask some questions. Hi, my name is Jay. Uh, do you guys see uh, a future where there are multiple people trying to uh, use the same micromobility solution or the, have a, a single trip for more than one person? Like, it could be a tandem bike or it could be a cargo bike, but there's no shared solution for that. I mean, the things that we see out there are very expensive, but cool, but still not available for sharing. Okay, sorry. Uh, the thing that I would say is um, if you're talk, the only one I see it really being a use case for is someone who doesn't have the ability to operate the partner mobile. You know what I mean? So, for instance, uh, Ford Go Bike will, I believe, let you check out up to three bikes at a time. So, if you're with friends, I mean, you're paying for it, but you know, un, just one click and you can unlock these three bikes and, and ride and go together. Um, the thing for me as a parent, I, um, I, I would like to be able to ride with my kids and technically they are not allowed to ride any micromobility. There's no bike share or scooter operator that allows kids to ride. And that's something that I would like to see fixed because um, the whole notion that you need to have a driver's license to operate what we all viewed as like toys three years ago um, is kind of nuts, you know? So it's a matter of how do we get them trained and, and certified so that the companies and the cities can feel good about them taking this and heck, maybe they never need to use a car. Are you suggesting that in a world where we already allow unqualified dangerous people to operate a vehicle, we should add another class of unqualified operators on another type of vehicle? Yes, because there are not two to four tons of power that are going to be able to mow over the other people. We're talking about micromobility. It's the bikes and the scooters, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to break this down into two prongs. There's the, like, how do I get my cool kid on my bike or tandem or, like, my drunk pals on the back? But then there's ADA compliance and how every single city operating bike share, aside from Portland and College Park, Maryland, are out of their ADA compliance. Uh, yeah, if, if you are physically able-bodied and can ride a bicycle, great. Bike share and scooter share is great for you. But what are the modifications to allow somebody who is visually impaired or hearing impaired? Or what I've seen in DC are people putting their wheelchair, the front bar on the top of their scooter, and then using the scooter to cruise. So like there are so many cool modifications that could be in place. Underlying all of this and what's going to be the biggest hurdle is liability and risk. How do I then attach that person's name to my account and ensure that they have signed off on all of the agreements and fine print, and then who is liable if something happens? If my drunk crew does something while they're being my drunk crew. Were you gonna say something? Yeah, uh, are, you, are you also talking about vehicles that can carry legally carry two people or more at once on the hardware side? Yeah, I think uh, we're seeing that already emerge in other countries. Um, and I know a few companies experimenting with two person scooters, but also I think it's the bike side of the equation is interesting because I don't know if people are familiar with Super 73 model or longer uh, yeah uh, the seat it can hold multiple people on there and there's a few companies look 
looking to deploy that actively and also actually in autonomous mode as well in city. Uh, autonomous for rebalancing. So you, you like you hail an Uber, uh, autonomous bike will come to you and then you would ride it to your destination. Josh, are you listening to this? Tight. <laughs> Just want to make sure you heard the autonomous bike shout out. <laughs> Great. Hi. Um, I guess going back to like a premise of these um, bike shares or micromobility being for everyone, one of the problems or, yeah, that I've seen is, uh, and I think that this was released from the two scoot scooter companies operating in SF right now, Scoot and Skip, is that like the majority of rides are taken by, you know, white males who earn 100K or more a year. And if these solutions are supposed to work for everyone, uh, it's like a huge challenge to get like the communities underserved uh, to use them in the first place to, maybe they don't have an app or maybe it's not super familiar to them. And um, I guess I'm wondering maybe how are some ways that you're approaching or have thought about approaching like getting these into everyone's hands and not just the people in this room who are already excited about it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I think there's the whole spectrum of inclusion for companies. There's who do we hire? Who is representing us? What are our internal practices? What are our cultural competency trainings? Then there's how is our product designed? Like if somebody is visually impaired, are they able to interact with our product? Um, if somebody isn't really tech friendly, do they know how to interact with our app? Um, language accessibility. And then there's how do our bikes land in people's neighborhoods? And so much of that is the thoughtful, time consuming, incredibly important work of community outreach and trust building. And we have an amazing crew of people who do that. Megan, shout out in the room, who did all of that work in San Francisco. Um, Megan Mitchell is, is really the reason why we have the permit in San Francisco because of the really intense and intentional community building work to get neighborhoods bought in. Because you don't want to just drop a bunch of new things in a neighborhood where they already distrust the local government, where they've already been screwed over by transportation planning and so many other social services, and where bikes and scooters are often the Trojan horse of gentrification and displacement. This means that one more thing is changing and another white person is going to show up in their neighborhood and take their resources. So yes to all of that. And then really cool outreach and programming to make sure that people are celebrated and this is theirs and um, that not all of our marketing is just young white bros that you described. Uh, the last bit is pricing. Um, so are these costs accessible? Uh, I know most, not, if not all of the companies have price accessibility where we have the boost plan. Um, if you're eligible based on your income or any kind of uh, discount you get from federal programs, you, you pay five bucks a month for 60 minutes of free ride time a day. So yeah, do we make the thing cheap and easy for you? Yeah, I would just say, have you been to Oakland? Uh, is Kirby Olson here? from Oak, Oak Dot, oh, okay, uh, well, when this report came out the other day, uh, Kirby on Twitter t invited everyone to come over to Oakland and see how they're approaching this problem, and a lot of what Nelly outlined or, or what they are implementing, implementing there in terms of pricing, in terms of uh, uh, equity zones where there's a minimum deployment uh, required by operators. So in Oakland, I believe it's 50% of vehicles need to service this specific part of town that's traditionally underserved. And we're seeing that replicated across country, or across cities around our country and also in other cities and uh, other countries. 
Um, but Oakland, you know, if we compare the two cities, Oakland has been more open with the number of vehicles. And it's, again, what I, my point earlier was it creates a certainty of mobility for people. And it doesn't just become like a tourist item that you ride once every couple months. It's something I can depend on, like an Uber. And there's liquidity there in terms of vehicle supply. Yeah, this is this is my whole whole thing. When you are when you look at the map of San Francisco and the number of e-bikes that are deployed or scooters or anything and and you know our population and then you put that against anywhere else where there's successful actual you can rely on this deployment like Santa Monica, uh Santa Cruz, uh Sacramento, uh, Chicago, anywhere like that's not here. Um, we have toys. We have toys that are, end up being for things like, oh, hey, it's here. I'll use it. As opposed to knowing that within a five minute walk of my door, whether I am at home or somewhere else, that there's going to be one there that I can rely on. That is a mode of transit. So you need to be talking about, I mean, my estimate for San Francisco, I would say is minimum 10,000 bikes, 10,000 bikes. And if you had e-bike share of 10,000 bikes in the city, then there's pretty much at least double that uh, easily double. Okay. I'm just, Oh my God. I love you. (laughs) I'm just saying to start, you know, to kick it off. It's like, because we get into the whole thing of like, who is this for? Who takes it? Who's willing to try it? How do we get to mass? How do we get people to say, yeah, it's there. All right. We need to have it at scale. And at, we started at 250. We started at 250. And I, I was that. counting down the days till we could get to 500. Do you know how much money I spent putting them on hold just so I knew it would be there when I got out? And I feel like I'm back there again because we got up to 1,000 and then four Go Bike e-bikes went, a bit, went away. So it's like I... It's like, I have to think about this. I have to put effort into it. I have to calculate this into walking and whatever, you know, to go get, fetch that bike. If it's just there, if they're all over the place, then I can use them. Then they can be recirculated everywhere and to ensure that they're in the Bayview and freaking out in the Richmond where everybody has cars and driveways and whatever. We need massive amounts of these everywhere and we need to welcome them into our communities so that everyone can ride. I agree. And I also think we need to push cities on better transit options. I think back to what Alex was saying earlier. Uh, why not have 20,000 e-bikes that private companies are making money off of? While also, I think, what, since uh, 2017, there's been $8 billion invested into uh, these private micromobility companies. That's a shit ton of money. And if you think about what that could do in terms of like real transit infrastructure, uh, a whole lot. So I think that we need to push for both. Um, I think everyone here is totally aligned around that, but I just wanted to highlight that. Cover your ears now. Uh-oh. Why not just subsidize or give away vouchers to everybody to just buy their own bikes or scooters? Because I don't want to take care of it. And that's something, if it's mine and I've got to watch out and make sure that somebody doesn't steal it and I've got to service it and it's got a flat and whatever else. And now I need to go pick up my kids and I do need to get in that metal box or they're over here and I'm over there and whatever. This tag team thing that happens, I mean, if you have a very programmed life and you live here and you work here (laughs) and nothing ever varies on that theme, 
you can own it. But, and if you can outlay, I live on top of a hill. You can't get on top of that hill unless you've worked your ass off like I did to be able to make it up on my 35 pound bike with no assist. Or you lay out an enormous amount of money, like $3,000 to get that e-bike. And then yep. I've got to watch it and make sure that nobody steals it and whatever just to get home. Uh-uh. I want the thing. I'm going to pay the this. And it's going to get me there. And it's going to be there when I get out in the morning too. Yeah. You just named... A few more audience questions. Is it okay if I create space for us to hit more? Say one last thing on this. And this is appropriate. Um, so women still make up largely all, if not two thirds or more of the chauffeuring trips of the household. So mothers are trip chaining between picking up kid from daycare, going to soccer practice, getting pizza, and then coming home. So as you're saying, you need a, a, an ability to float between options that you could just like nimbly, what they call the nimble commuter respond to in your day-to-day -day basis. Oh shoot, it's snowing today. I can no longer take my tiny little scooter to go get pizza. I, I should have access to transit. So it, it comes down to like the norms and behaviors of people, which often relates to social identity. That was good. Thanks. Oh, hi. Um, Nelly, this is, I think, mostly a question for you, but you mentioned protected bike lanes being the most important thing. What's your company doing to increase access to this, um, right? Both from like, a, not just from a giving the data, right, around how, how many people are getting from point A to point B, but actually growing the network, not just in San Francisco, but across all the places that Jump is operating. Totally. Um, we are proud to say that we support financially all of the bicycle advocacy organizations in the cities where we're live. And I used to do fundraising for a bicycle advocacy organization, and I can confidently say the money that we're providing is funding the direct staff time to organize those campaigns and mobilize those members. It's not like... I would give you numbers, but I think that would not be appropriate. Uh, in terms of the big picture number, it's something at this point, now that we're live in 24 cities, we've donated $600,000 to local nonprofits who do that bicycle advocacy work. And then we're working on a larger national partnership with, with some of the national bike and pedestrian organizations. So it's funding the work of the people who are already doing the work. And then it's mobilizing our riders to actually participate in that process and see that as an incredibly valuable process. But I just wanted to step back and say, everyone know what a protected bike lane is? Something that is physically separating you between other modes of traffic, for example, just parked cars or potted plants. Um, it's really simple stuff. It's fucking cheap that our cities are putting this, this banner that bike infrastructure is too expensive and they need to cut it from their plans is ridiculous. The entire, you know this, the entire network of protected bike lanes and infrastructure in Portland, the entire network was the same price as one mile of highway in Portland. It's, it's just ridiculously cheap. So th there's really nothing standing in the way other than what Warren mentioned earlier, which is the status quo of people who don't want to see their neighborhoods changed. And and I, I have to add on top of this that um, this is one of those things like just peel back the onion further. What are we protecting bikes from? We're protecting them from cars. And so the fact that the companies that are putting out the vehicles for us to ride and to try and make ourselves healthier and save the freaking planet are the ones who also have to be, oh, you know, like, are you, are you chipping in for this? Whatever. No one is chipping in 
like the cars are not paying anywhere near the proportion to fill the pothole or paint the lines or anything else that allows them to drive everywhere and kill us. And then the ones who are doing the things that are, if you have the ability, if you have the geography, the geometry, the abilities, whatever, this is what you should be doing. They're the ones who have to pay. The onus is put on them. And this is absolutely backwards. We have to start flipping this. This cannot be that cars get everything and that micromobility is the one that pays and pays and pays and begs and all of that. We have to flip it. Right on. Okay. One more question. If anyone has one, I know you probably do. Anyone? Hi. Um, I know you guys talked about how many bikes San Francisco does need, like 10,000. Um, what do you guys think the cap is? I mean, jump can bring out bikes and all that. Um, but what about smaller companies? What if individuals wanted to fund such things? I mean, is there space for that in the future, do you think? Or do you think it's just the big, the big ones that are going to keep going at it? Yeah, I, I can respond to the first half of that question, and somebody smarter should respond to the second. And that's the, the policy tool that many of the companies have been pushing, which is a performance-based cap which would say like, okay, you're running your own company. If you're able to meet a utilization rate over a constant period of time and show that you're a good steward of public space, hell yeah, then you're showing demand. You get to put more of your fancy scooter dues out on the, on the market. So instead of locking into specific tiers or a specific rigid framework, it should all be based on demand always. Yeah, and I'm going to answer. I mean, Michael has a scooter startup. I don't know if you've heard of it. So he's probably better equipped to answer this. Um, but so, so much of micromobility at this point in time, at least like the shared asset aspect of micromobility is just glorified performance art. And I really think it's kind of like luck of the draw and your network and just how much VC money you can get. Um, so, I mean, there is barrier to entry and I think there's probably inherent bias in that too, right? Like it depends on who's going to a VC to flirt with them and make them fall in love. Like it's, I don't think that just anyone can start it. I think it's someone who knows how to play the game. Who's probably been groomed to play the game since they were a child. Um, you, like who, I think you should who have, could get in, but you, I do think that it should be more open. I'm just saying that's not the nature of Silicon Valley. I wish I was wearing a black turtleneck right now and being like, first they say you're crazy, but, you, but you, it's just you, a, it's you a should, different game. I, I think anybody that's trying to beat the ones at that are doing it, you know, ostensibly well at their game is that's that's you're just that's not going to happen. But if you are able to differentiate, you're serving a um, niche population, you have like, to me, one of the things that we are so missing is cargo bikes that you're able to like do replace your car trips. Like you can do your, um, your shopping, your errands, take kids, blah, 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 whatever, like that kind of thing. If you have a different vehicle and it, it serves a different set. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm sure we can find people for you to like throw you some money, um, and cities to welcome you. But if it's, you're just going to be another bike or a scooter like i, I would agree yeah. with you yeah i think yeah differentiation of form factor but then there's also got to be that grooming there too where people teach you how to talk to angel investors and venture capital like i think that that's a reality but i totally agree with you like do something find the differentiated form factor um you know like try it out i think uh it's really interesting in that way but i do think it boils down to like if you can flirt unfortunately michael i can't sorry um <laughs> but, but i, I 
maybe I misheard your question, but are you are you asking if uh, like small mom and pop shops could launch a company or maybe a new business model built on micromobility, like crowdsource funds from the community, like something like that? Like I've so there's actually a few companies or a pony in uh, France and the UK and uh, one called Near or Smide in Switzerland. They're actually community funded micromobility shared services. Uh, so Pony, for example, I paid $200 for the dockless bike and it's my pass for the year or actually I think multiple years, but I also own the asset and I, I uh, revenue share with Pony, the company uh, as well. And that's a really interesting model. Um, and then near, you can pay a couple of thousand to help uh, sponsor essentially the local e-bike share and then you get unlimited access for the next 24 months and so I think there's a few innovations in the business model in the future where getting the community involved in funding your local micromobility shared bike electric scooter service it, it will become more of a thing especially in smaller tier two tier three cities and the other interesting point is that uh, talking to these operators is that the vehicles are actually easier to operate, maintain, because when multiple people in your community have an invested interest in those vehicles, people look out like if there's a pony stranded or like toppled over, they'll pick it up because I paid $200 or 200 euros for uh, that asset and I want to make sure that service is generating me revenue and profit. That's it for tonight. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out, panelists, and thank you all for sticking around asking questions. This was very fun.